Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. All right, so good to be together. My name is Ben Kearns, one of the pastors here on staff. It's such a beautiful day. I don't know about you, but yesterday was the worst. It was like 57 degrees yesterday with like mild winds. I was like, who lives like this? But today, it's beautiful. And um, we are in Lent, and um, we are starting a new series. And we are starting a series called Sunday Fun Day. That's today. But we are so hip. We are so cool. We're doing hashtag Sunday Fun Day. So Ray Lennonberg, right now your mind is like, right? Exactly. So Sunday Fun Day is this new series that we're doing. And uh, it's a hashtag, which means you can search for it on social media. So being a good pastor, wanting to prepare well for the sermon, I went to Instagram, typed in hashtag Sunday Fun Day. There are 49 million Post trending worldwide. So we are like in it. We are in the sweet spot. So I, um, I, I ripped some of these, these pictures, which I hope they don't mind because they're Instagram famous. But look at this woman. I'm thinking Sunday fun day. She is living large. She's obviously not in breezy um, Nevada. She's somewhere beautiful, embracing Sunday fun day. These were, these were like uh, chronological as I was going through my 49 million of them. Check out this lady. She's obviously not from here too. Minnesota, living large, fun, Sunday fun day. Um, I love this picture. Two friends, right? If you're thinking it's Sunday fun day, obviously not in California as well, but going out with friends, living large, like, ah, oh, it is a day off. It's a time for joy. Look at these guys on a hot date down in LA, loving it, eating donuts, obviously not on Lent for them. Oh, Am I right, little dog people? Like, oh, how do I want to spend my Sunday with my dog? It's so sweet. Well, I was searching everywhere. I mean, going down 45, 46 million pictures going, as I'm sure someone is going to be like, how rad is church? How great is it to be in church? I'm, I mean, if I'm thinking Sunday, fun day, church has got to make a, 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 you know, got to represent somewhere and nowhere. And I think, because I think probably, I mean, I, I took this picture from somewhere else because I think when people think of Sunday, fun day and church, I think why in the world would I ever go to church, right? I mean, think about it. You only have two days off. If you're from Marin and you work in Marin or the city, you get like maybe a half a day off and you're willing to give up part of your one day off in the morning, the best part of your day off to come to church, to sit here, right? And if you're not part of our community, I mean, I think this is great, of course, but if you're not part of our community, right, you just think, why would you ever do that? You're going to be with friends. You're going to eat donuts. You're going to live large. Um, but I think actually there is something for us to think about and to reflect on, on this idea of Sunday fun day. So for me, I think today really is Sunday fun day. I mean, when I wake up in the morning on Sundays, I'm most of the time so excited to come here. I mean, take a look at this picture. This is Danielle preaching from a couple weeks ago. When Danielle preached, is that a good Sunday? I'm like, yes, please. Especially when you sang that Whitney Houston song. I was like, oh, so good, right? I love our church. I love our church. We're, we're trying to figure out how to be good Christians. We're giving up macaroni and cheese. I'm like, gosh, look at us. We are going hard. Last hour, one of our people in our leadership team is giving up Narcos, probably like the darkest show on Netflix. I'm like, look at us. We're going after it, people. We are figuring out this spiritual journey. But I love, I love Sundays. I mean, over the years, I mean, I've been coming here for 15 years or so, and this is, this is family to me. This is an opportunity to come, be with people who I love, people who love me, even people who are brand new kind of get a vibe like, oh my goodness, people love each other here. And not just in some fake way, but in a real way, trying to figure out how to live real life with all of the joys, with all of the pains, with all the sorrows that we're going to kind of meander through this life together, trying to figure out how to know and love God 
together. And I don't know about you, but my week, some weeks are really great, some weeks are really awful, and there's something about starting the week, kind of getting my, my bearings straight, recognizing I'm not the center of the universe anymore, but that actually there's this God who knows me and loves me and loves you and loves the world and actually is in control. And so today is Sunday. It's Sunday fun day. And there's a couple of reasons why I think we, we, we should be making ch- uh, church, like actual old school, coming to a church building, being with people on a Sunday morning. I think there's a couple of reasons why that's important. And then we're going to take a look at one of the things that we do Sunday to explain it. So one is that we rehearse the church. I mean, the truth. So I had this Art Greco moment. Art Greco is our, our lead pastor. He just retired a year ago, but he's old. And I remember he told this sermon once, and he mentioned how cutting edge Neil Young was. And I'm like, oh, Art, you're so old. And then I had this great idea to talk about rehearsing the truth, and I came across this. This is Stuart Smiley. Raise your hand if you know who Stuart Smiley is. Yeah, because we're an old church, some of you guys, right? So he was on Saturday Night Live before uh, Chad. What's the guy who does Chad? What's his name? He was like that for them, right? So he did Stuart Smalley. This is Al Frank. He's a senator who was for a little bit, right? And he did this. It was an awesome sketch. He said, he'd look in front of the mirror and you say, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <sighs> right? That's what we do. If you've ever been to therapy, if you're like becoming an adult and you're figuring out, you realize that you have been given tracks, there's certain tapes that play in your mind of the way in which you engage the world, the way in which you engage yourself. And so there's ways that you think about the world. Like you just don't show up and go, oh, this is how I'm to engage. We have a narrative. Every interaction like either adds to that narrative or like gets disappeared and we don't even think about it. And so we rehearse the truth, right? We want to be able to go and think about who we really are, what the world is all about. And left to our own devices, our world gets narrow and small and we become the center of it. But we come to church, we rehearse the truth, we sing worship songs, we spend time in the word, we do the sacraments, we, we do these rhythms and these rituals because what it does is it, it, it takes the normal tapes in our mind, the normal narratives in our mind, and it gives us a fresh narrative, a fresh sense of ourself, a fresh sense of the world in which we live in. So all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I watched the news and I'm so anxious, there's so many things going on, I have so many things out of my control. Well, yes, that is true. We come to church and we realize, oh, man, God has been good and faithful generation after generation in every part of the world. God has been faithful and good and his mercies are new every morning. Okay, right? My life is in shambles. God brings hope. My life is great. Well, I better leverage what God is doing for for the glory of God. We rehearse the truth in season and out of season, which brings me to my second point. One of the second reasons why I think it's important that we come to church is because it's a needed discipline. And we don't like talking about disciplines. Um, And a lot of times we have like this weird distant memory because nobody I know really grew up in like a hardcore fundamentalist world. And some of you did, I mean, but generally as a culture, we have this distant memory of this fundamentalist world where if you don't go to church, God's gonna be mad at you or at least your aunt is gonna really be mad at you. But the reality is the spiritual disciplines, giving up something for Lent, having spiritual disciplines in our life, those are things that actually allow us to be all that God has for us. It doesn't make God love us anymore, but it puts us in a posture so that we are ready to be all that God has for us. So are there any musicians in the room? Just brag. Like, yeah, I crush. I love it. I actually used to be a musician. I was going to be a professional bass player, um, but I cut off part of my finger, and that's a whole long story. So every now and then, though, I get to play bass in the band. 
And six months ago, I got to play bass. I loved it. I was like, yes, it brought back all my glory days from high school and college. And, uh, and I get to play again in a couple months. I mean, no, in this next month. But don't tell Michael this, but I haven't practiced in six months. And so I realized I better start figuring this out. So every day in my office, I spend like in 45 minutes, I'm practicing, I'm practicing, I'm practicing, so that when it comes time to play, I'm ready to go. And people who are actual legit musicians who practice day in, day out, in season and out of season, right, they are free to do unimaginable things with their musical abilities because they've practiced in season and out of season. Some of you guys are athletes. The same is true, right? People who are athletes practice day in and day out, right? They practice their jump shot. They practice their free throw. They practice dribbling. They, they, hit, they hit the weights. And because they practice, they do all these boring things in season and out of season. When it comes time to play basketball, they're ready to crush it. Me, I only do screens. That's all that I can bring to the table when I, bring, when I play basketball because I do not practice. But the exact same thing is true in our walk with God, that we want to be people who are open and available to all that God has for us. And the hard part is that we do the disciplines in season and out of season. And we've kind of made these weird agreements that we go, well, I don't want to just read the Bible if I don't feel like it, because that's just legalism. But how often do you really feel like reading the Bible? I mean, some of you faithful people every day, but I mean, if I'm honest, I look at the Bible, there's no pictures. I don't even know where to start. There's weird countries and I'm out. I think, man, I, I want to go to church. Should I go to church today? It's beautiful outside. There's a million things to do, right? So I'm only going to go to church when I want to go to church. Okay, but how often do you really want to go to church? And just like athletes who stop, you know, spending more, who spend more time on the couch and, and at the gym, they start getting more comfortable at the gym. It gets harder and harder to go to the gym. And the same is true in our spiritual life. If, if we don't do the disciplines, if we're not in the rhythm and in the habits, it makes it that much harder to even jump back in. And so Lent... The Christian life is about doing these disciplines in season and out of season so that we can rehearse the truth. We can become these spiritual giants so that God not will love us more, but that we can actually be used by God to expand his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Well, one of the things that we're going to be doing throughout the series is we're going to take a look at all of the different components that we do on a Sunday morning. If you grew up in a liturgical church, every component is really clear in why you do it. In our church, it's a little more hidden. And so we thought, what if we spent the next six weeks looking at what do we do on a Sunday morning? Why it's important that we do those things, what, what it matters. And so that way, when you come to church as a discipline every Sunday for the rest of your life, because you love being with God's people and you're ready to rehearse the truth and be these spiritual giants, you'll know, oh, that's why we sing these songs. That's why we come to the table. That's why we preach the word. That's why we have the offering, right? These are the things that we do. And we're going to help us walk through in this season of Lent, look at each level of our, of our Sunday morning service with kind of fresh eyes. And so this morning, we're going to look at the table. Is this a beautiful table? Oh my goodness. I know. Emily Hess uh, made this thing so beautiful. Um, I wanted to just put out a cardboard table with uh, some Wonder Bread because I have no class. I have no artistic ability, but how cool that we're part of a church with people who just know how to make things so beautiful. So we have this beautiful table and we're going to take a look at the Lord's Supper, communion. Why we, take, we celebrate communion uh, once a month. Some churches do it every week. But almost every Christian who's in church today, everywhere in the world, is celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we get to join in with them. So it's food for the journey. And what that means is as we move on this journey towards Christ, there is this actual movement. It takes time. It takes effort. There's, we need to be fueled up for that journey, right? We need actual real food for that, but we also need spiritual food. And communion is this really unique 
It's called a sacrament because it's this mysterious combination between this real food that we eat and digest and this interaction between the Holy Spirit and this mysterious interaction where God actually meets us in a really unique, special, grace-filled way. And we encounter Christ and he nourishes us in a brand new way. So this is communion. And you may not realize this, but communion, the meal of communion is based on an actual real meal on a real meal that was prepared for a very real journey. So 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses was in Israel, and he was, I mean, was in Egypt, and he was a slave. In the book of Exodus, it begins with this story. If you go back to Genesis, you realize God's people showed up um, in Egypt because for a whole long, uh, whole long series of events, they end up in Egypt as guests of Pharaoh, but a new Pharaoh shows up on the scene, and, and the new Pharaoh's like, who are all these Israelites? And he makes them become slaves. So for over 400 years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were crying out to God, crying out that God would redeem them, that God would save them, that God would deliver them, and that they would be able to go back to this land that God had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they could go back to this promised land and be all that God called for them to be for 400 years. Well, God heard their cry eventually, and through Moses, Moses begins the process of bringing his people out. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, yeah, it wasn't like that convincing, but that's right, what happened? Let my people go. And just like Pharaoh's like, well, okay, whatever, I'm not going to do it. And so God sends plague after plague after plague, right? There's frogs and flies and hail and boils. And, and after every single one, Pharaoh's like, this is awful. And then it kind of changes his mind and says, no, you can't go. You're not free. You're not free. Well, the last plague is the doozy. It's the big one. God tells Moses, listen, I'm about to do this awful thing to the Egyptians. I'm going to judge the Egyptians and I'm going to wipe out the firstborn of every, every family and every animal in all, of, in all of Egypt. But you are my chosen people. You're my prized possession and I'm not going to do that to you. So what I need you to do, you have to tell your people this, to go and to take a lamb, take a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, and you're going to sacrifice that lamb you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of the Lord comes throughout Egypt and judges Egypt, it'll pass over your family and your family will be saved. But listen, when Pharaoh wakes up and realizes what happened, he's going to kick you out of Egypt. So you need to be packed up, ready to go, take food for your journey. And in fact, you don't have time to like bake bread normally. You don't have time to make the yeast rise. So take unleavened bread, make this bread, pack it up and be ready. And so there's this meal, there's this Passover meal. And, and sure enough, right, this, the, the Spirit of God comes over throughout Egypt and wipes out the firstborn of every family. Pharaoh, you know, gets, goes crazy, kicks them out. And that becomes a whole separate story. So Exodus chapter 12 begins this, this story. It says this, So on that night, I will pass through Egypt. I'll strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. So this blood, the blood of the spotless lamb, the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed will be a sign on the doorpost of your home where you are. I will see that blood. I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then he goes on and says this, this is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And in fact, all the way through Genesis 12, like three more times, God makes it clear, this is a lasting ordinance. This is a lasting ordinance. From generation to generation, you are going to tell the story. You are going to rehearse this truth every year. 
For 1,500 years, the Jewish people told this story of the Passover meal. Now, what I think is interesting is Passover is really a foreshadow to the communion table. Passover is this incredible meal. And for 1,500 years, right, it begins like, like anything, even after a few years. But imagine 1,500 years, that ritual kind of began to have some traditions around it and, uh, and some, you know, some symbols around it. And so the Passover meal would begin, um, you'd set up a table like this. It's nice and beautiful. They would take three matzah crackers. And that's how they would begin the, the, the Passover celebration. They put them on the table. And those three matzah crackers would represent a whole variety of things because over 3,500 years from all over the world, there's all these different strains in the Jewish faith. But one of them, you know, one, one uh, tradition says it represents the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One, uh, one tradition says it represents the priests, and the Levites, and the, Isra- uh, and the Isra- Israelite people. Um, one says it represents the three temples. There's the first sem- temple, the second temple, and the, the coming temple when God comes and brings ushers is his kingdom again. So you take these three matzahs and then you'd have this giant spread of food and you'd have bitter herbs and you'd have lamb, right? Representing the bitter herbs was the time and suffering. You talk about the plagues. You'd have the lamb that, re- that would remember the sacrifice of the lamb and that the, the blood over the doorways and what that meant, how that re- redeemed and saved the people of Israel. And then there were four cups of wine. I mean, Jewish people know how to party. Am I right? We in communion get one cup that you dip in, but Jewish people during Passover get four cups of wine. And each cups tell a different part of the story based on these different passages in Exodus of promises that God will, that God will say. In fact, um, one cup is the cup of deliverance when, when God says, I will shall take you out. There's the cup of praise or the cup of judgment. I shall rescue you. That's my favorite part of the Passover meal when you go over each of the plagues. There's the cup of redemption, which is now after the meal. We talk when, when God says, I shall redeem you. And then finally, the cup of acceptance that I shall bring you out of Egypt and make you my very own people. And so you have these cups, um, you have these matzahs, you have this meal, and that's the context For 1,500 years, the Jewish people have been doing that over and over and over again. And then Jesus, during Holy Week, the the Thursday before before Easter, there's actually during the Passover festival, he gathered all of his disciples. He gathered all of his disciples in this room, and they sat at this table, just like this. Imagine Michelangelo. I don't think that's exactly how it looked, but you get the picture, right? And Jesus' disciples are all gathered around this table. And what's interesting is there's two parts of the Passover meal. There's the first part, the first two cups of wine. And those two cups represent all the things that God did in the past. All the ways that God's power redeemed and and rescued the people of Israel. And then after dinner, the whole Passover feast changes directions. It moves from what God did to pointing forward to what God is going to do. So at the very beginning, there were three matzahs, and the tradition is that you would take the center matzah, you would break it in half, you'd take the larger piece, you'd wrap it in linen, you would hide it in the house somewhere. And then when you get to this part of the meal, the end of the meal, the leader, uh, usually the dad, in this case it was Jesus, but he would look to the youngest person and say, okay, now go and find this piece of matzah called the afikomen. And so the little kids would run all the way around the house looking for this afikomen. And I just imagined Jesus, I mean, this was a somber moment. Jesus knows like there's a lot of heavy stuff coming, but you know, Jesus probably has a sense of humor. So he's like, hey, John, you're the youngest. 
go find the afikoman. And everybody else laughed and had more wine while they watched John look all over. But I'm sure John finally found it. So somewhere in this room is the afikoman. So look under your seats and see if you can find the afikoman. So part of the service of the Passover meal is looking around for the afikoman. I'm going to give you a hint. It's over here somewhere under the seat somewhere. Oh, look at it. And it's almost the youngest person in the room. Thanks, Isaiah. Woo. Nice job. Thank you. Okay, so, so that's where we are. It's, 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 it's the end of the meal, and that's where Jesus shows up, and he takes the afikoman. And I, I found this rabbi who, who said this about the afikoman. The first half of the meal is centered on the work of God. The second half of the meal points to his future, like I said. Then he says, the afikoman represents our liberation from Egyptian exile. That redemption, however, was not a complete one, as we are still waiting for the final redemption with the coming of Messiah. Setting aside or hiding the larger half of the matzah reminds us that the best, the real redemption, is yet to come. It is still hidden in the future. And how incredible that Jesus takes the afikoman. He opens it up. He takes the half piece of matzah, and that's when he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Isn't that incredible? He's basically saying, listen, you've been longing for Messiah. You've been longing for true redemption. You've been crying out to God that slavery and exile and oppression, you're ready for that to be done with. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And this is now my body, which is broken for you. And then the, the tradition says that after supper, Jesus takes the cup, right? So there's two cups in the beginning part of the meal. There's two cups in the second part of the meal. So the third cup, the cup of redemption, that's the cup that Jesus takes. The cup after the meal, the cup of redemption, he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And the Jewish people knew the covenants, right? They knew the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of David. And now Jesus says, there's a new covenant sealed in my blood, Right, this is a cup of redemption. They know the Passover story. They know that what they're talking about, the blood of the lamb that protected their home from coming, uh, from coming judgment. And now Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen. This blood of the lamb, I am the blood of the lamb. I am the Passover lamb that is being prepared to be sacrificed for a new covenant. The shedding of my blood is now for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, the third cup. That's where Jesus does this. And what I love about communion is there's this two-part thing that happens. The very first part of communion is it's this longing for God to redeem and change the whole world. The Christian life and the Christian experience is not just about you individually and not about me individually. It is about God ushering in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is the Messiah over all. He is Lord over all. The communion picture, the story of, of, of communion, the things that we rehearse, is to remind us that this story is not about me and it's not about you. It is about Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah. And we worship him and we love him. And we come to communion to be fed, to be nourished, so that we can be a fully functioning body of Christ, together, corporately, ushering in the kingdom of God. So that's one part of communion. The second part of communion is that there is this individual heartfelt devotion part towards Christ. 
Communion isn't just uh, being absorbed into a, the masses, but there is this individual ask that God has for you. There's another covenant that Jesus just alludes to in the, in the Passover meal. You see, um, there's, there's, a, there's a Jewish, uh, and the Jewish wedding contract is called the ketubah. And the way it would work is the husband, the bridegroom and his family would go and have a meal with the bride and her family. And they would kind of do a little, negotiation, a little nego- negotiating. Excuse me. But what's interesting is almost always the husband, the bridegroom, would write up this contract saying, I am going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and you are going to be my wife, and I'm going to be your husband. Till death do us part, right? And the way that they sealed the ketubah was through wine. Wine symbolizing the blood. Wine symbolizing, basically, this is a, a blood oath contract that we are making. And so the husband would say, I promise, will you take this cup? And the bride would take the cup. And when she would take the cup, she was basically saying, yes to the contract. Yes, I'm giving my heart to you. Yes, you are now my husband. You are betrothed. It's not like our engagements. It was like you were married, married. They didn't consummate the marriage, but they they were married. And then the husband would say, I am not going to drink again of this cup until I come and get you. Right? Jesus says the exact same thing. I will not drink again of this cup. And then what happens, this is incredible. The husband would then leave, go back to his father's home and begin work on his home, on his apartment, to making sure there was a home, there was an apartment, there was a house suitable for his bride. He would be preparing a place for her, for their new life together. And in that time, the bride would be preparing herself. She would be making herself ready and they would be waiting longingly for the time that their marriage would be consummated. And so when we take communion, we take the bread of Christ longing for Messiah to come more fully into the world, and we take the cup as our personal devotion to Christ saying, yes, I say yes to you. I say yes to you again. Forgive my heart and my adulterous heart, my wayward ways for all the things that have gotten between me and you. And yes, again, I take the cup and say, yes, I will be your bride and I will wait longingly for you to come and make all things right. You don't get that staying at home all day on a Sunday, right? That is hashtag Sunday fun day. That's why we come. It's why we gather. It's why we rehearse the truth so that we can be reminded of the goodness of God, of the power of God, of the glory of God. One of uh, the people on our worship leader, on our worship teams, John Beam, uh, just came up with this incredible... um, communion reflection. I just wanted to share this with you. So why don't you listen to this and we'll finish up our time together. Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. I grew up in the church. So for me, communion was often about sitting and being uh, quiet and taking an inventory, thinking about myself and God and to acknowledge and remember his sacrifice for me, Uh, which is all good, you know, self-reflection and um, awareness of the separation and the connection um, to God through Jesus. I was probably removing the scriptures about communion from their context and kind of you know, pouring my own context into them as I read and understood them. 
Um, and so, yeah, yeah, you know, when I would think about Paul's instructions about taking part in the Lord's Supper, I, I, I would be thinking about, you know, sitting in a pew with the trays being passed or perhaps uh, walking forward, you know, receiving the bread and the cup and commune uh, with God, me uh, and God. But as I pulled back and like looked at the context, and that communion isn't, wasn't necessarily a ritual the way you know, we've kind of come to practice it as much as it was a, a family dinner, you know, a, a gathering together to remember and celebrate and to break bread together. This idea of like, you know, self-reflection isn't about necessarily me simply identifying, hey, where am I in relationship to God? But also, where am I in relation to the family that he's placed me in? And is there something I can do or change that would make us more like who he intends us to be? Can this gathering around the table be more like the heaven we're called to? To be one with God and with each other by the grace of God through the sacrificial love of Jesus. I just love that picture, and I love the tension of trying to recognize that communion and being together is for the glory of God and the longing for coming Messiah and the kingdom of God to be made manifest on earth as it is in heaven, and for our own personal formation to encounter the living God, to have our hearts be made soft anew as we make new wedding vows to our Savior and to our bridegroom. And so here we come to the Lord's table. And then Paul, in, the, in, first, I mean, in first Corinthians, he gives us his words that have now the church has used for generations and generations to come. It says, For I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And this is the bread that he took. He took the afikomen at the end of the meal, after they'd celebrated, after they've had two cups of wine, after they've had the blood, I mean, the, the lamb representing the sacrifice. They looked for the, the, the hidden piece of matzah that represented the coming Messiah, the longing hope for a coming Messiah. And Jesus, Jesus said, that is me. He took that bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then Paul goes on to say, and in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. It was after the Passover meal, taking the third cup, the cup of redemption. Everyone's already recognizing, talking about the blood of the lamb that protected their family in Egypt. But now Jesus pours out the cup of redemption and offers new words. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. This is an individual invitation for you to say yes to Jesus, to accept his forgiveness, to accept his grace. And then he goes on to say, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And just like Jewish people would gather around the Passover table longing for Messiah to come, we as Christians recognize that Messiah has come but he's not fully come to make all wrongs right. And so we take food for the journey 
We take our seat around the table to be fed so that we can do our part as the body of Christ to usher in our little part of the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And we wait anxiously for the day that Jesus will come back, will make all wrongs right, will wipe every tear from our eyes. We reaffirm our love and devotion to Christ this morning. And that's what we do when we gather for communion. Amen and amen.